Welcome to Mamas in Training, a podcast that gives new moms guidance and community from moms who have been there. I'm Jessica Lorian, a mama in training myself, so let's learn together all about this thing called motherhood. I've been most worried about the mental health impacts of the pandemic because isolation, um, loneliness, and um, feeling kind of helpless. You don't control your surroundings. These are things that really increase our anxiety and increase our feelings of depression. I've known a lot of people who were functioning fine before the pandemic and now are struggling. And it's because the environment has changed and, and these stressors are hard for a lot of people to tolerate. I would just want to remind people that if they're having a hard time, they're not alone and there is still help available. We all have our own friends and family and sometimes you never know who's struggling unless you ask, like really ask. Taking the time to connect um, with your loved ones and provide support to them can really make a difference too, as well as for our children. Vaccines are here. The world is starting to look brighter. Summer is coming. But do you still have questions? Are you concerned about the vaccine with pregnancy? infants, children, or yourself, then this episode should give you a lot of comfort. On today's show, I sat down with Kelly Fraden, a pediatrician, graduate of Harvard College and Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, who focused her career on children with chronic medical conditions and school health. She is also the author of a newly released book called Parenting in a Pandemic. She was the perfect mama to share her thoughts on the vaccine and the pandemic as it still affects our world today. Here is Kelly. You're a pediatrician, a mom of two, an advocate for children's health and wellness, and you're based in New York City. Today, what I wanna talk about specifically is something that I know you are very good at, which is translating the science especially as it pertains to COVID-19. Today, unfortunately, as we sit here, we have 130 million worldwide cases, and unfortunately, we have lost 2.83 million people. So while obviously, as I say those numbers, my just insides start to topple upside down, while those numbers are obviously scary, I specifically wanted you to come on here to provide some comfort and reassurance to mamas out there, mamas in training out there, and I'm so, I'm so grateful that you're here because I think you're the perfect person for this. You yourself have experienced and lived this as you have two children, right? You were thrown into remote schooling, a kindergartner, and watching your two-year-old and you working remotely. What did it feel like if we go back in time to a year, a year and a half ago, what did it feel like at that time for you as a woman and as a mother? Yeah, you know, I I have to say that I saw this coming like a little bit sooner than the rest of the community. A lot of physicians did because you were hearing the reports of what was happening in China and you were stacking up on things and... And as you know, I, I know a woman from um, medical school who's a doctor who wrote the article in the New York Times, like the sky is falling right before everything shut down. Uh, and, and I can't really overestimate how scary those first few weeks were in New York in particular, when we had just um, so many deaths and we had very little information. Um, so that was that was definitely like the darkest days for me. Like, where would I get my groceries? How would I keep my family safe? 
um, what would happen to our jobs when we couldn't go to work anymore and and our kids couldn't go to school anymore. And it was, you know, like staying up late at night reading the news. And, and I was worried about people and I was really worried about um, families, like the families that I took care of in the South Bronx with like asthma, you know, they were panicking about um, whether their children were at increased risk because of their respiratory conditions. And, and um, I just wanted to do something uh, to kind of help other people through it. And so I would like be reading the articles anyway for my own sanity and my professional role helping schools and just share content um, that I thought other people would find useful because you know, the media has been so helpful and informative, but sometimes they have an agenda, right, to like get clicks or sell, sell newspapers. And and I've noticed a lot of bias in the reporting, you know, there have been studies about like the negative overtones of, of some media versus other media. And, and so I think it's easy to get, especially when we're also isolated, um, kind of overwhelmed trying to to analyze it all yourself. So like you may have access to all the same information and what I can do is try to like curate it or discuss how I digest that information. I don't have any information that you can't find elsewhere really because it's all out there these days. That's exactly what I wanted you to do is translate the science. You're not only on the educational doctoral side of it, but you're living it firsthand. Um, Back to what you mentioned about the the bias and all of that, I saw that you had said you have seen misinformation in both extremes, pushing people toward bleaching their produce and avoiding all outdoor exercise, and then misinformation pushing people toward being blasé about the virus. So can you just, this is going to be a hard question, (laughs) I think, can you boil it down to us? What is the number one thing we need to remember about the pandemic? Uh, You know, I think it can be really helpful, especially now when so many people are tired, to remember that this will end and we will move past this. Um, You know, the vaccines are here in a big way uh, and they're going to make an impact. It's going to take time um, to see that impact. Uh, you know, I don't know when we'll we'll look back and call this over. It might be another full year before we get there, but we will get there. And I think sometimes remembering that and having hope for that um, can can kind of power us through. I think it can help to remember that there's hope. Yeah, absolutely. So you were reading all of these articles, collecting all of this information and data, and then you found that you were being asked a lot of the same questions by all of your friends and friends of friends. So you started this amazing Instagram handle that people have to check out. It's at advice I give my friends. And then you decided in the midst of all of this craziness to write a book. <laughs> and your book is yeah. called Parenting in a Pandemic. For those who are listening, you'll, you'll definitely check it out in the show notes. It can be found as an ebook, a paperback, an audiobook that I love. You said you recorded the audiobook in your closet. That's just amazing. <laughs> Props to you. Yeah. It's such like an adventure, the whole thing, because it was in July. I had started like an email newsletter and never sent anything out. And and I said, like, okay, I'll just like copy paste all my coronavirus content into one document and I'll send it out. And it was 50 pages. And I was like, look at this, my husband. And he's like, you should write a book. And it was like ju- July. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I have to do it like right away because it's not going to be relevant very long. So I wrote the whole book in July while my kids were at camp and while they were um, sleeping. And it was like a passion project. 
there are so many families out there struggling to understand, not necessarily to understand the science, but to understand how to interpret the science and how it affects your choices and how it affects things like sending your kids to school or things like getting pregnant or, you know, the, the book doesn't have very much about the vaccines because they weren't out then. It's still um, all about risk benefit, even now as we're thinking about once you have your vaccine, what can you do and what can you not do? We're still thinking about those risk benefit balances and thinking about, um, you know, the risk of doing something, the risk of not doing something, the benefits you'll get from it, how to mitigate this, those, um, those risks as best you can. So I think, I think having um, time and space to kind of think through those, those decisions has been helpful for a lot of people. I mean, I've heard from a lot of families that found it helpful, so I hope so. Overall, you say that you feel you have confidence and excitement for this vaccine. I want you to describe this amazing analogy that you said, being a cart returner at a grocery store no. means to you. <laughs> it's funny because uh, it's something that has really been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. And I think I grew up in the South and there everyone returns their carts. And in the Northeast, not everyone returns their carts to the grocery no. store. And I, uh, like, of course, some people maybe they have a physical injury or a little kid and they, they can't do it that day for whatever reason. Sure. That should be like maybe five to 10% of the population. But we're talking about grocery stores where like half the carts are not returned. I'm like, why are these carts not returned? They pose a safety risk to everybody. They, um, they're, they're unattractive. They take up parking spaces. They make uh, the whole experience of going to the grocery store worse for everybody when you don't <laughs> return your cart. And so I, I, a couple of months ago, I wrote an, uh, a newsletter about how, um, regardless about how you think about your individual risk, um, choosing to get vaccinated is like doing your part to making this pandemic go away. Um, and I think it's like giving a gift to all your neighbors and friends and, and your, your children and your families. And, you know, even if you say like, you know, I'm thinking that if I got coronavirus, I would probably be okay, which for a lot of young women, you know, people under the age of 40 in particular, the vast majority of them do okay with the virus. Some people don't, you know, some people have long symptoms after, but most people do okay. Um, and so I think to motivate that population and to help help us think about like why we would go out of our way to get like a sore arm and potentially a fever and upset stomach, like the expected side effects from the vaccine. I think it helps to think about the impact we can have on our broader community that we could you never know who um, you might expose if you don't and you were to have coronavirus and it can give you real peace of mind that you're doing your part. Make everybody's grocery experience much better. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So now what do you say, though, to those people, and I was one of them for a very long time, who do have hesitation? Vaccine, especially in the motherhood community, can be a very touchy subject. I also want to say that this podcast episode is not encouraging one thing or another. It's just gathering information. And I have some questions that came in from my audience to ask you as well with somebody who's a professional and somebody who has her opinion and what her experience is. I'll share how I first felt, for example. I have an autoimmune disease. There was a medication that I took that I won't get into the whole thing of it, but basically I ended up developing arthritis a year after I started taking it. Now, who knows what could have led to that? In my mind, I think that the medication I took 
gave me the arthritis, but who knows? Mm -hmm. So when it came around to something like this, which is an injection similar to my autoimmune medication, I was hesitant because I thought, you know, that medication that I was taking had already been around for 10 years or something. And then I got seriously worse after. So now here's this vaccine that has been around not even a year. And how do we find comfort in that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people feel that way that everything's been happening so fast. They feel like, how could this be safe if it was developed so quickly? But when you go back and look at it, um, you know, the mRNA vaccines, for example, they have been in development for, for about 30 years. So it's not like they really were able to start from scratch. You know, the, the whole concept of the vaccine was that you could like plug and play. Um, so you like would insert a code and be able to use what they had developed, basically like the vector to deliver the code. And so in, in like between 2010 and 2018, they had done a dozen clinical trials about, you know, Ebola and, and other um, viruses using the same technology. So while it was for sure developed, uh, the coronavirus specific vaccine was, was developed um, a year ago, the, the fundamental like stuff used for the vaccine was developed before. So that helps to understand. I think the other thing that can help um, is to remember that you're making the decision for you and for your family and it's your choice. Sometimes I feel like um, maybe the pressure is a little bit off-putting or overwhelming for some people to feel like, like they, you know, you still have a say, it's like your body and you should do your research and talk to your doctor. I'm not an OBGYN, so I can't comment exactly on, um, on what your your doctor would say if you're pregnant or expecting, um, but but I think um, I I think that those things like remembering that you're in control, that it's your choice, um, and that it's a relative risk um, can be helpful too. So what I mean by relative risk is like if um, you are going to just be living a normal life and going back to seeing friends and doing things in your community, at some point you may get coronavirus. And so you, you have to weigh the advantages and disadvantages against getting the virus um, too, because it's kind of a reality that you probably won't be able to avoid it forever. Um, and so so because of that, it may be worth the small inconvenience and discomfort of, of the vaccine when you remember that like it, yeah, it, I'm getting actually my second shot soon. And it's like, I'm not like looking forward to getting my second shot because I know it might be kind of crummy. I might feel kind of crummy afterwards, but I would probably feel better than if I got COVID. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you mentioned in the beginning about the history that this is all coming from, because of course the majority of us have not lived through any other pandemic, but there have been multiple pandemics in the past. And so there has been trials and workings behind the scene that we haven't heard about because we haven't lived through that, or it hasn't been in our scope of relevancy. But mm -hmm. that's that's something that I didn't think of. That's really important for everyone to remember too. Yeah. And it's really interesting too, if you uh, read the Moderna CEO, somebody asked him like, because Moderna was actually a pretty small company before all this. Like they, they had Moderna, I don't know if it's obvious to everybody, but the M and the Erna is like mRNA. The whole company was about these mRNA oh. vaccines. And, um, and 
when you ask him like what's next he he's like i'm going to tackle cancer next so his idea is that then he'll be able to take like uh targets from cancers and customize vaccines against those in the future which is so cool mm. um uh, not that that helps you think about your coronavirus vaccine but the the idea that this technology is, is like really amazing mm. uh, and and hopefully we'll be capable of doing a lot of good okay so i want to dive into some of the questions that i got from my audience and once again as you just mentioned you're not an obg and everybody has their own specific situation but in general, here are a few questions we had. Rachel asks, what are the current updates that we have in the new clinical trials involving pregnant women? Yeah, so um, the there is um, a cohort of like 15,000 pregnant women who are being followed. Most of them are healthcare workers or, or working in a hospital setting. They were amongst the first people to get the vaccine back in December and January. And um, slowly but surely they're giving birth. Um, and it, so far they only have like 300 or so. The last report I think was almost a month ago. So by now there have been more, I'm sure. Um, but the last report was that there were no complications in that first cohort out of the normal Mm. Um, so, you know, in terms of the babies being born with any problems, with any, you know, risk factors at delivery, like preeclampsia or anything like that, there wasn't anything, um, different except what they did find is that the babies of women who are born vaccinated do have antibodies, um, as you would expect for them to, just like how we get the flu shot or the pertussis shot during pregnancy, um, and expect our babies to have some protection. That's true for coronavirus, which is which is nice to confirm. Yeah, well, jumping on that, Natalie had a two-part question. The second part of the question was, with regards to breastfeeding, will it give the baby antibodies, and will it affect her supply at all? The antibodies that you get um, while pregnant are the, the IgG, IgM antibodies that go like through the bloodstream of the placenta. And those probably last the baby about six months. So if you get vaccinated during pregnancy, that's probably pretty robust protection that the baby will have for about six months. Now, when you're breastfeeding, because that milk goes like to the baby's mouth and stomach, um, it does have IgM and IgG in it, but those are mostly just like chewed up because they're like bloodstream antibodies. There's another antibody called IgA, which is a an antibody wor which works at the mucosal membranes. So in your mouth, in the back of your throat, in your stomach, and it, it uh, kind of coats those surfaces and actually physically blocks the virus from entering the baby's system if they were exposed. So I think it's important that women know that it's probably incomplete right? So it's going to be like a balance of how much IgA happens to be on those surfaces compared to whatever the dose of virus in the air the baby's breathing in. So, you know, you wouldn't want to count on the breastfeeding protection alone to prevent the baby from getting sick. Um, but, but it's certainly a benefit um, and a way to kind of reduce the baby's risk. A lot of women have asked also about like dosing older toddlers or older children with breast milk or yeah. continuing breastfeeding longer to get those benefits. And it's hard to say because we don't know the dose or the effect size and we don't know how long it would last. Like say I gave my, my older son four ounces of COVID antibody milk, like how long would that protect him? I don't think it would protect him very long. 
So I, I wouldn't really advise people to put too much pressure on themselves. I don't think it's going to be like game changing. Mm-hmm. So if you know breastfeeding is hard enough, there's enough pressure. Like if you can, and you want to, great. But if you don't want to, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. I don't think your baby is going to be like significantly missing out um, from those breastfeeding antibodies. We'll be right back. This episode of Mamas in Training is supported by Nussel, Mama's Milk Wrap a full-coverage, hands-free pumping and breastfeeding aid. With its soft fabric, the Nussle wraps around your torso, providing moist heat therapy to encourage letdown of your breast milk. While doctors usually recommend hot showers to encourage milk production, the Nussle allows you to have complete coverage, stay dry, and fold your laundry at the same time. When you're ready to start the dry-up process, simply pop it in the freezer for 30 minutes and lay it across your chest. The cold compression of the Nussle signals the brain that the breasts are full and slows production. One Nussle mama says that her dry-up time has gone from one year to less than one month. Heat and cold therapy of the Nussle lasts 20 to 30 minutes and can be used on other parts of your body for pelvic pain or back pain. One client even said that her teenage daughter uses it for her period cramps. The Nussle is perfect for the entire household. It's also an ideal baby shower gift. It can be used right away as a pregnancy belly support and a postpartum belly compression. Nussle is with you throughout your entire motherhood journey and beyond. If that wasn't enough, the Nussle also comes with a free lactation consultation with one of their team experts. Nussle Mama's Milk Wrap is a product and a service for only $59.95. And just for listeners of this podcast, they are offering 15% off. So go to mamasmilkwrap.com and enter the promo code MAMASINTRAINING to grab your Nussle and 15% off. Now back to the show. Going back to Natalie's, her first question was with regards to fertility and the vaccine, and I'm not sure what you've heard about this, but have there been any signs that it could affect future um, pregnancies? So there's no signs that there's fertility repercussions of the vaccines. So you know, I, I don't consider myself an, an expert in this area, but I've read all the statements from the OBGYN societies and the Society for Reproductive Medicine and uh, Maternal Fetal Medicine. And, and there, there's scientific consensus that there's no um, concern about the vaccine's impact on fertility. Interestingly, um, you know, whether coronavirus, like getting infected with coronavirus might affect fertility is still an open question. We do know that um, the virus does infect uh, the testicles and is found in the sperm. Um, not not active virus, like you're probably not going to get infected by sperm, but we can yeah. tell that there's virus in the men's sex organs. And there's a temporary decrease in the male fertility after mm-hmm. infection, which we see with a lot of other viruses too. Like if you get a bad case of the flu, you might have temporary um, decrease in fertility if you're a man or whenever you're you know, having high fevers, that kind of thing. So were there an effect on fertility from the vaccine, we would expect that same effect from being infected with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so theoretically, there's no increased fertility risk from taking the vaccine. Um, And I don't think there's any evidence of women's fertility being affected by either the coronavirus infection or the vaccine at this point. 
With regards to someone who is pregnant, if you're pregnant and low risk, if you're pregnant and high risk, either way, should they wait for the vaccine until after giving birth? So, I, I mean, I do think your exposure risk um, can vary, right? So, so I think a lot of women who work in hospitals, or maybe if you're teachers and you got a room full of kids breathing on you, <laughs> um, <laughs> you may feel more compelled to get the vaccine because of your exposure being higher. Um, in terms of other risk factors, I think just like outside of pregnancy, if you have an underlying condition like like diabetes um, that might put you at higher risk from coronavirus, that might sway you towards getting it. I, I think the other consideration for vaccination in pregnancy is the timing. The OBGYN people have been very clear there's no reason to not uh, try to get pregnant while you're getting the vaccine. Um, uh, but I think if you are pregnant, there's a question of when to take it during pregnancy. Right. And I think that that's a personal decision. It's going to depend on your exposure. Like if you are in a high exposure role, maybe just sooner is better. But I think some women um, I've heard have been deferring the vaccine until the second or third trimester, just because um, that's a time when, you know, if you get a fever, there's there's less risk to the, the developing baby during that time. Not that there's any specific danger from coronavirus, but um, but just for peace of mind, mostly, mm -hmm. I think a, a lot of people have been choosing not to get the vaccine in the in the first trimester. That was a question, actually, that Jessica had was about the first trimester, so that's really helpful. Now, what about her similar question? So she is pregnant, but she got coronavirus just a few weeks ago. So do you still recommend getting vaccinated in that situation? Yes. Um, so the antibodies yeah. generated from from infection um, don't seem to last as long or be quite as good as the antibodies um, generated from the vaccine. Like there was a cohort mm. study of military people. So they, they did a lot of testing, like testing these military um, people who were in barracks in very close quarters. They, they tested them twice. They isolated them for two weeks and then they put them all in a close confined area and tested them regularly. And like 80% of them eventually got coronavirus and 10% of them got it twice. And that was only over like two or three months, you know, that they had before they came in, they had documented antibodies and they still got sick. And whether they got as sick, you know, these were like people in their 20s who didn't get very sick in that study, thankfully. Um, but, you know, I think you're you're more likely not to get it again if you have the vaccine. But I do think that if you've had a recent infection, especially weeks ago, they do say that you're pretty unlikely to get it the first three months after an infection. So it might affect the timing of your shot. You know, mm -hmm. like you might say, like, I feel comfortable waiting another few weeks until I'm further along right. in the pregnancy or until maybe, maybe if you're on the fence or feeling hesitant, you can also, you can also expect that that study I mentioned before with the 15,000 pregnant women, like more and more information will be pouring in from that. And so you um, may learn learn uh, new information that, that you could help uh, make your decision. That's perfect. Lisa asks, what does approved for emergency use of the vaccine really mean? She wanted to know if that removes legal repercussions from manufacturers of the vaccine, if the moms later find side effects that harmed them or their baby. Ooh, that is a good question. Um, so it, 
it's interesting that vaccine manufacturers have, there are like protections uh, about their liability um, before this vaccine, actually, that there's like a, um, what is it called? I guess it's the VAERS system, V-A-E-R-S, V-A-E-R-S, the Vaccine Adverse Effects Reporting System, which we use. So the vaccine developers, they have to like cross one hurdle to get emergency use authorization, then they have to cross another to get the full approval, which I'm told Pfizer at least is going to go for full approval in the next few weeks. Um, And then they have to, even after they're fully approved, they still have to do this post-marketing surveillance um, because like batch to batch to make sure all the safety standards are being met. Um, So, you know, I think there's multi-layer protections in place about the safety of these vaccines. And it, you know, I may not know all the technical details, but the there's a vaccine education center at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, which has a lot of really great information. It's curated by Paul Offit. Um, and it, it kind of spells it out um, and has some like videos and stuff explaining uh, the approval process that might be more informative. Oh yeah. I'll find that link and include it in the show notes. That would be yeah. great. So I wanted to just move on quickly before we wrap up to families that already have children and just speak for a second on family vacations before children are vaccinated. You know, this is really beautiful. You said that you want to balance realistically that the children are low risk, but not absolutely no risk. So what would you say to those families who especially, you know, we're in April now, we're coming up to the warmer holidays, we're going to be looking to go out and get some fresh air and probably mm-hmm. change our, our spaces. So what would you say to those families? There's a few things to consider. Well, you know, one is like the risk of your activity. So you think about how much coronavirus is present, where you are and where you're going. Um, you can think about the way in which you're going and how to decrease the risk there. They say actually that airplanes in and of themselves have very good ventilation, but there have been cases linked to air travel, especially on long flights where people are like sleeping and eating and taking their masks off. So, um, you know, if possible, if you're traveling with a child who, uh, can't be vaccinated yet, ideally they would be able to mask throughout the travel. to, to kind of decrease the risk of getting the virus in transit. Um, I think it's harder to travel with the kids under two who aren't able to mask. Um, you know, in those scenarios, if you can drive or if you can have people fly to come see you, um, that would be uh, ideal. The CDC just released some new guidelines today saying that vaccinated people can, can feel confident traveling because they're unlikely to um, you know, they don't have to quarantine after travel and things like that. So I do think that looking ahead to the summer, I'm hopeful that because of the vaccines and because of the good weather that'll facilitate social distancing, um, we'll get our instance down, I think, to a level at which like, like if, you know, we still have 6% positivity here in New York right now, but if we can get it down to like, 0.5% positivity, yeah. you know, that would be the kind of situation where it's like, even if your child is not able to mask, you, you know, their odds of getting sick in travel are going to be much smaller when there is just very few cases in our community. And we've seen in Israel, 
Israel's like maybe two months ahead of us in vaccinations because mm. they did a really good job with their rollout and they've had their cases drop like 80%. Um, and they're not fully vaccinated. They're like 50 or 60% vaccinated. So they're not at herd immunity, but they're still seeing, you know, the more people in a community that have the vaccine, the less spread there is. Um, even before you get to that magical number, hopefully we may yeah. get to one day. Um, so, so I think, you know, if we can keep plants tentative and if we can kind of try to be creative about ways to maximize our enjoyment with um, while mitigating our risk, we can still kind of travel some this summer. You just mentioned herd immunity, and I wanted to quickly talk, touch on this. Herd immunity and cocooning, what are these two things and how and and why are they important? Yeah. Um, okay. So herd immunity is the idea that like you get to a percent in your community of um, people who have had um, had COVID or that they've had protection, um, you know, from vaccination or from having the illness. Um, so they're not going to get sick. And so nobody knows what the magic number is where we'll hit that, that many people have it and then it stops spreading. The, the reason nobody knows, and you'll see estimates from like 60% to 80%, is because we don't have um, firm enough understandings of, like we don't take people with X amount of antibodies and spray them with coronavirus and see if they'll get sick. So, so these cutoffs are just kind of, they're estimates based on like other viruses and lab tests about what is neutralizing antibody levels of protection, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a guess. Um, and things like the reinfection rate. So um, I think there was an article, in, I think it was CNN. Somebody was arguing with Dr. Fauci, because Fauci, of course, is like 80% or more is herd immunity. And some people think it's closer to 60%. And the reason they think it's closer to 60% is because they're saying, we have to count all the people who have had natural infection. But I think Fauci and some other people say like, oh, we know they can get reinfected, so we can't really like count them the same way. So mm -hmm. we need a higher threshold. But whatever it is, the herd immunity is the goal that the, the virus will stop spreading and, and eventually like just be, be part of our um, cold and flu season in a very minor way. Uh, cocooning is like an individual level technique that we use a lot as pediatricians with newborns. Um, so, you know, we may not be able to vaccinate a baby younger than six months for flu, but if everybody around that baby has been vaccinated for flu, that'll decrease the baby's risk of getting flu substantially by like as much as like 80%. Um, mm -hmm. because mostly newborns are, are kind of at home in a set community. So that's easier to think about. I've been thinking about that a lot, even in a bigger community, like my daughter's in daycare, right? So I'm like, her teachers are vaccinated and the parents are increasingly getting vaccinated. So if we can get to a point where um, all the adults that these children interact with are vaccinated, um, then the kid's risk of getting it and spreading it is going to be lower. So even before those kids are able to be vaccinated themselves, maybe we'll be able to do things like let them take their masks off in their small fixed cohort. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So I think, um, I think cocooning does offer us um, the ability to protect kids before they can be vaccinated.
especially as we go into this warmer weather and summer holiday vacation. We're always on the news. We're hearing about things in such a big, broad way. The matter of fact is we cannot control everybody. And if everybody doesn't get the vaccine, there's nothing we can do about that. But what we can control is our inner circle, our mm-hmm. family, our friends, and those people in our cocoon. So when I read that, I loved that concept. And I think that that's a really important way for all of the mamas and mamas to training to to think about this. If you want to go and hang out with people or you want to make plans, maybe cocooning is the way that you think about it and and kind of – surrounding yourself with that level of comfort and security for your own peace of mind. So thank you for explaining that. That's really helpful. Yeah. I personally, and I don't have any kids and I'm not pregnant, but I personally feel so much calmer from gaining all of your insight and learning everything today. I want to just touch back on your book, Parenting in a Pandemic. I want to express to everyone who's listening that this book I wanted to dive into it fully, but we just didn't have the time. It reviews the basics of coronavirus and what you need to know. It also lets you know what is known, the direct and indirect risks of coronavirus to children, newborns, teenagers. And then it gives you some practical advice about coping, making decisions. I think right now, the way that we are in this world, it's a lot. It's a lot for virtual school. It's a lot for, you know everybody, mothers especially. And so just to kind of tie this all up in a nutshell, I encourage everybody to go out and get your book and read it to find some comfort. But also, what is something that you want to share and leave with mamas and mamas in training out there to just find that comfort and let them know that they're doing a great job, no matter what that looks like? One of the things that you reminded me of is as I've been most worried about sort of the mental health impacts of the pandemic because isolation um, and loneliness and um, feeling kind of helpless and like you don't control your surroundings. These are like things that really increase our anxiety and increase our feelings of depression. I've known a lot of people who were functioning fine before the pandemic and now are struggling. And it's because the environment has changed and, and these stressors are hard for a lot of people to tolerate. So I think it, I would just want to remind people that if they're having a hard time, they're not alone and there is still help available. Even if you don't want to leave your home, you know, you can do telemedicine stuff or you can reach out, reach out to friends and, and, um, doctors remotely. I think because um, we all have our own like friends and family and sometimes you never know who's struggling unless you ask, like really ask. So I think taking the time to connect um, with your loved ones and provide support to them can really make a difference too, uh, as well as for our children. You know, we, we know that this is a trauma, right? And as we process this trauma, um, we know that like connection and, and support are one of the, one of the things we do control and one of the things that makes like a huge difference for people's outcomes. So, so I would, um, encourage people to like not be alone, reach out, reach out and, um, just be there for your friends and family and your kids too. And I think that just being there and being supportive will be enough to make a big difference. Yeah. Surround yourself with that community and that comfort. So important. Kelly, this has been so helpful, so comforting for me, and I hope and I know that it will be for all the mamas out there listening. 
I'm so grateful for you and I look forward to continuing and catching up. Hopefully, maybe we'll do a, a year check-in and we'll be talking about <laughs> nothing about the coronavirus. We'll just that be talking be about some other wonderful things. Yes. Um, but I know that you provided a lot of wonderful information for women out there. So I'm so grateful for you and everyone. You can find Kelly at Advice I Give My Friends as well as her website. All those things I'll put in the show notes and you can find all that information. But I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Nice to meet you. Nice chatting with you. You too. Bye. If you enjoyed the show today, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so I know how to better serve you. I'd also love for you to join our community of Mamas in Training on Facebook. You can find me at Mamas in Training on Instagram and at mamasintraining.com. For Mamas in Training, I'm Jessica Lorian. We're in this together.